Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code IsaacArthur. This episode is brought to you by Morning Brew. If the past is anything to judge by, one thing humanity is sure to bring with us in our journey to the stars are arguments, interests, and squabbles. So what else does the past tell us about the future? Today we have a two-part episode looking at the geopolitics of colonizing space, and we are joined by Rudyard Lynch of the What If Alt His channel to give us some historical insight into how this might all play out. The second half of the episode will be over on his channel, and don't forget to hit the like and subscribe buttons while you're over there and check out some of his awesome content. If you are coming in from What If Alt His to watch the first half, welcome to Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur, or SFIA, and what we'll be doing in this half is trying to set up the landscape and critical factors that will be influencing the scene, then Rudyard will try to overlay our existing geopolitical landscape into those in the second part. The first thing to acknowledge though is that there isn't a single scene or landscape. Space is huge! And it's likely that even the development of our own solar system will result in a local population of many quadrillions, scattered around not just the well-known major planets or even the dwarf planets and bigger moons, but on the millions of minor planets and asteroids and potentially trillions of artificial habitats. That's just this solar system too, and does not include the half a trillion siblings it has in this galaxy among the billions of galaxies in our observable universe. It also doesn't include potential multiverse, parallel realities, or potential virtual worlds which might become far more popular and populated than many a barren rock needing terraforming. All of which means we should not be assuming any given ideological, economic, religious, or political system would be universal throughout colonized space or time, but a broad and ever-changing situation. Indeed, in spite of the laziness of many a sci-fi author, where entire colonized planets seem to have a universal language and culture, Earth has never had that and quite possibly never will. Indeed it would be hard to think of any nation that had a monoculture, and even the impression of that occasionally from history derives from there being many a nation that we have less than a page of records from, or because we get accounts from a single person who is stereotyping their neighbor or even their own civilization. Conveniently for a lot of those minor planets and artificial habitats, they could be small enough that they really paralleled small nations or possibly just small towns, but even then, few would be very static or homogenous based on our known examples here on Earth. One minor caveat to that, there may actually be some ideal way to run a civilization, discoverable by science, or one that believably appears ideal anyway, in which case you could get convergence of ideological, political, or cultural beliefs and behaviors. We still wouldn't really expect that to result in a homogenous civilization, but it may be fairly cookie-cutter in many fashions, basically uniform all around all colonized space and not changing with time. We might call that a stagnant culture but would have to do so with a grain of salt, If your civilization can demonstrate it's the best possible one mathematically, accusations of being stagnant are a bit hard to make stick, staying number one isn't stagnation. For today's purposes we will assume that either is not the case or so far in the future as to be beyond our scope, though if such a thing existed it might be a thing of even this century, not a million or billion years from now. Now it is common to look at history as swinging on certain critical factors and events, which may or may not be a good approach in some situations, 
but it would be hard to argue against a major influence in the Age of Sail was all the new commodities available for trade or more easily and reliably available, be it precious metals or spices or new foods indigenous to other areas, that trade impacted those civilizations a lot, and the folks who forged those trade routes, established access to those goods, and controlled the trade in them, had a lot of wealth, power, and influence as a result. As we head up into space, we expect something parallel, and while there are a host of potential trade items, the two we discuss most on SFIA as potential kickstarters for space industry and development are asteroid mining and power satellites, and which one happened first and started the snowball rolling for space development would probably affect a lot of what the character and focus of early colonization was. For instance, power satellites are all about getting energy down to Earth, a multi-trillion dollar economic sector and one with a lot of knock-on effects if you have cheaper electricity. It also helps with environmental issues related to energy generation groundside, plus has the cousin industry of solar mirrors and shades for influencing the planet's weather and temperature. Someone who got this working to the point that they were generating power even just slightly cheaper than it's going right nowadays is going to be in a position to be the world's first trillionaire, and a rare example of an industrialist popular with environmental groups, they might start getting introduced as that person who saved our planet while also opening the door to a million other planets. Not a bad position to be in, getting viewed like that while having more money than most entire nation states. Asteroid mining goes a different way, the main initial interest is in precious metals being brought back to Earth, which has no real benefits to the economy or environment in and of itself, compared to abundant cheap clean energy for instance. However while a power satellite grid probably requires a huge investment to get running and see profits, a trip to a metal-rich asteroid and home with a couple thousand tons of gold or platinum is a big initial profit. Now it takes a long time to get an asteroid, even a near-Earth asteroid, of which there are tens of thousands, and to mine the metals out and send them home, but some of your money comes when you prove to a reasonable degree of certainty that the asteroid you have picked has these metals and you have a reasonably reliable method of extracting them and shipping them home at well under current commodity value. So you might wonder if asteroid mining has an upper hand as a kickstarter for space as it seems to enjoy an advantage of providing quick revenue compared to the other. They also seem like very different approaches attracting very different mentalities. A group of pioneers going out to virgin land to farm it is likely to be quite different than one of a spine to a port of a river with gold nuggets in it. In a similar notion, the other advantage of asteroid mining is for non-precious metals, all those construction materials we want for things like space habitats, or power collectors or solar shades or rocket fuel. If you were doing all your processing out on an asteroid and only sending refined materials home, or if you were sending whole asteroids back to Earth orbit for protracted refining, you get two very different looking colonization plans. One might see mining settlements on asteroids growing into habitats, embedded into the asteroid and growing as communities far from Earth, while the other might feed a growing swarm of habitats and infrastructure in Earth orbit. It is likely to see a very different growth and evolution in many remote colonies far from Earth or each other compared to those that would be literally and metaphorically trapped in Earth's orbit and dominion. With all that in mind we will be looking at some future historical alternatives, what ifs like what if the main push for space is for asteroid mining or power satellites, what if the push for space is a single nation and if so which one, or if it might be a private group, and if a private group, what if it was a for-profit corporation such as we would expect for an asteroid mine, or more of an ideological or religious focus for a group, those seeking their promised land or refuge from persecution or where they didn't have to live with everyone of the opinion, appearance, or behavior that they loathed. Now it's very hard to guess how the future will roll out, 
but we can draw from our experiences and our history, and maybe the biggest lesson there is that the inevitable conflicts and clear paths forward of today often are not what materialize or what seemed obvious and inevitable yesterday. Needless to say, any project that involves our global energy economy or playing around with lighting of the planet is inherently a big issue for terrestrial governments and politics, but whether you're shipping home gold and platinum by the megaton from asteroids or beaming energy down by the gigawatt from an orbital power grid, there's a vast amount of wealth and power. It doesn't stop there either because a power satellite grid also provides the infrastructure for pushing lasers for shoving spaceships up to high speed and beaming power to them thus assisting in space colonization. Needless to say, they are weapons too. And asteroid mining also provides the raw materials for constructing that space infrastructure, for refining and supplying the fuels the ships will use, and for creating all that space, habitats, and waypoints those ships could dock to. Indeed, we even have objects called Aldrin Cyclos, or Interplanetary Cyclos, which convert a small asteroid into a sort of hybrid spaceport and ferry, moving the cycle or castle, as they are called, between worlds and having the ships dock or undock with them. So we can see some obvious sources of political power in space to motivate existing nations or groups to seek to acquire them, but it is also a good example of how those directly controlling NASA become powerful. It's not just that a nation or corporation that owns a big asteroid gold mine has a lot of cash, the specific director of that installation, and the key engineers or administrators for it, start becoming personally influential either inside their existing national group or as a new one entirely. There is no nation named Facebook, Twitter, Google, or Amazon any more than there is one for a host of powerful bureaucratic offices or issue-oriented lobbies that did not exist a generation ago, or for TV personalities or podcasters, news anchors, or editors, and yet these entities wield tremendous amounts of political power. This, ironically, is another thing to consider, because a given entity is likely to be as afraid of being usurped by internal rivals, or formerly junior allies, and partners as external enemies. What might start as a competitive rush by Country X to colonize the Moon, to show up or keep up with Country Y, might later see factions in X lobbying against the effort when their governor or viceroy on the Moon starts becoming too influential and powerful. If you followed American politics for instance, it would not be hard to imagine the President appointing someone from their own party with charisma, skill, and ambition to head up a moon colony, and that person later running for President themselves, and being opposed by a candidate from the other party who criticized or smeared the moon development project, you could easily imagine a given space effort, like that moon base, becoming a party line issue as a result. Things which can also involve what might have seen minor or tangential issues too. We don't tend to expect a sports game to be political, but we've certainly seen any number of sporting contests act as proxies for conflict down the years, or getting to be more popular with one unrelated political affiliation or another. We see that nowadays and we see that way back in the original Olympics, and it certainly comes up in modern Olympics too. So we acknowledge that there is a lot of unanticipatable factors and a lot of black swans in an emerging geopolitical environment in space, and yet there is a lot which is anticipatable. Again, like the idea that given space programs and efforts will spawn new powers. I come from a state where the aerospace industry is very influential. This industry did not exist a century ago, and Ohio was home to both Neil Armstrong and Senator John Glenn, and it's hard to argue that his service with NASA was not a critical factor in him getting elected, or that Armstrong could likely have won a seat had he chosen to run too. Victorious generals, acclaimed adventurers, titans of industry, and so on are an inevitable feature of the political landscape, 
but also a wild card because a popular Moon Explorer might have obvious views on Moon Expansion that folks respected, and more so, because that Explorer spoke passionately about them, but we have no idea what that person's view on guns, abortion, economics, crime, and so on were, and yet they would likely influence folks on those topics heavily. We also want to bewail false dichotomies. As an example, we posed asteroid money and power satellites as an either-or, but that was principally as to which would cause a snowball of space development first. It's not a question of us having to do one or the other, any more than if we asked if settlement of the Americas in recent centuries was driven by the supply of virgin farmland or the mining of precious metals. We could obviously debate their relative impact, but the answer is that they both drove colonization and indeed drove each other, and yet if we were pushing for government subsidy to space development and power satellites and asteroid mining initiatives were proposed, we would almost certainly see either or arguments when in truth we specifically discussed those two options as a way of kickstarting all types of space development, and that obviously includes each other too. At the same time, while singular events or personalities or opinion can have pivotal impacts on events unfolding, we should keep in mind there's a bit of truth to the notion of inertia too. Our example of asteroid mining and power satellites both hinge on the overwhelming desire for resources, that does not inevitably lead to either system occurring, but we can nominate them as candidates for getting things moving in space simply because they offer strong promise to satisfy that desire. But never assume inevitability of such things either. Earth, for instance, has nearly as much raw materials, including precious elements, as all the other rocky planets, moons, and asteroids combined. Hence if someone invents a technique for mining all planets' mantle safely and without ecological issues, suddenly asteroid mining is a thing for longer down the road because there's no real market for what they've got down on Earth. So too power satellites would have problems if someone managed to get fusion reactors working or even just made solar panels and batteries vastly cheaper and better for use on Earth. One new technology can disrupt that which seemed eternal and certain before, as history has shown us many times. In that same vein of thought, I mentioned Earth having more resources than all those other worlds combined, major and minor, but the lion's share of those others is actually in Venus, and as we discussed recently in our episode looking at whether we should go to the Moon or Mars first, Venus might be a better option than either, as might those asteroids or the moons of Jupiter. Indeed if someone gets a functioning fusion drive, even just a regular one, not something like the Epstein drive from the Expanse, then suddenly the outer solar system looks a lot more inviting because you do not need the sun for light and heat, you can make ships that can go very fast and cheap, and the outer system has so many more of the resources handy for a fusion-based economy, like hydrogen and its isotope deuterium, or helium-3, not to mention plenty of ice and water and nitrogen, which while modestly plentiful on Earth are very rare in the inner solar system. This offers a very different realm as well, because while many of the moons of Jupiter are all fairly close together and would permit quick and easy interworld trade, even with only modern spaceships, it offers something of an in-between option relative to space development, in the relatively compact Earth orbital space above an already fully colonized Earth, and a scattered asteroid belt whose millions of minor planets occupy a larger volume than all that down from the belt in the inner system, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. Each of the gas giants also has these robust collections of moons and Trojan asteroids of their own, albeit to a less grand scale than mighty Jupiter, and each represents a potentially compact collection of interconnected lesser worlds. Another thing to keep in mind though is that while we often discuss which nation or entity might colonize Mars or the Moon first, this is sometimes said as who will take control of them, 
and a good point to remind ourselves that even on a single planet or large moon there is a huge amount of area and raw materials, and a huge difference in climate too. Indeed Earth is arguably more moderate in climate, between tundra, desert, swamp, and jungle, than any of those places. A small base of a few dozen people, be it on Shackleton Crater on the Moon or Olympus Mons on Mars, while an accomplishment that would be remembered in history for a long time, does not offer any real capability to occupy an entire planet or control who else arrives. These places are huge, as capable of hoarding many nations as Earth is, and while science fiction often shows colonists fighting each other over bases and resources, you would probably see those conflicts going on back on Earth, where everyone's political, economic, and military might was actually at. In Part 2, we'll be trying to look at those current major players and ask how those situations might unfold. Much of what happens in the future is decided by the present, so even though this show mostly avoids discussing current events, I try to keep up on them and I've been a news junkie since I was a kid. Unfortunately in recent years, a lot of the news has turned into talking heads trying to fill a 24-7 news channel by recycling the topics, or by doom-laden social media posts, and both are an awful way to start the day. That's why I read Morning Brew. It's a daily free newsletter that gets you up to date on tech, business, and finance news in just 5 minutes, replacing dry, dense, and boring news with witty, relevant, and informative content and in a fast fashion that lets me get up to date on the world in 5 minutes over a cup of coffee. So I can get updates on the current space race or how Bitcoin and cryptocurrency are doing and again all the content is free, it only takes about 15 seconds to subscribe. To envision the future, we need to stay up to date on the present, and if you're interested in business, finance, or tech, there's no reason not to subscribe, just click the link in the episode description and start waking up with Morning Brew every morning. Of course a healthy knowledge of history is also vital to understanding both current events and envisioning future ones, and Rudyard will be walking us through how the emerging news space race might get rolling, and you can check out Part 2, also linked below, or on the end video card. This isn't our first Saturday episode but they are pretty rare, with us normally doing Thursdays and twice a month Sundays for the end of the month livestream Q&A, and the mid-month Sci-Fi Sundays episode. And if you're wondering, yes that's still on tomorrow, Sunday, July 11th, as we will return to our Alien Civilization series for a look at annoying aliens. And this Thursday we'll be discussing whether we should go to Mars now or return to the Moon and establish a base there first. The Thursday after that we will jump into the distant future, or maybe not too distant future, to look at the end of Earth. Two weeks from now we'll have our monthly livestream Q&A, don't forget to join us then to get your questions answered. Also, if you missed our most recent episode, Last Thursday's Strip Mine of the Galaxy, you can still check that out, and its sequel, The Galactic Laboratory, will finish us out for July on the 29th. If you want alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel, and if you'd like to help support future episodes you can donate to us on Patreon or our website IsaacArthur.net, which I'll link in the episode description below along with all of our various social media forums where you can get updates and chat with others about the concepts in the episodes and many other futuristic ideas, and don't forget to check out part 2 of this episode over at What If Art Hist. Until next time, thanks for watching and have a great week.